This is an interesting conversation that's developing here between Jesus and he's probably, we don't know for sure, but he's probably talking to religious rulers, people who have a good knowledge of Scripture but do not know how to apply it well. I find this to be fascinating. People who know the Bible but don't plug it into their lives well. They... I was reading a book by a guy named Robert Mulholland. He wrote an incredible book on, on, uh, on the Word of God, the Bible, and how we're to interact with it. And, and he brought up this idea, and I, I've kind of touched on this a few times before, guys, but he brings up this idea that as we read and as we study the Bible, we should do so with a heart of submitting to that which God has declared. Now, we would all agree with that, right? But the question is, do we truly live that out? And it can be at times that we can treat the Bible like other things that we read. We read it so that we might master it. We read it so that we might not only be able to understand it, but to be able to have an understanding in such a way that we, we, we kind of flip this thing around. We are no longer submitting to the Bible, but we are trying to get the Bible to submit itself to us and our understanding. And when we do that, we no longer apply this into our lives. And, and, and the question I have, as I think about this conversation, My first question, I don't even, I'll tell you my first question I had. I don't, I don't even like it, but I'll, I'm going to let you know anyway. My first question was, where was the Holy Spirit? And the more I thought about that question, I thought, that's not even a good question. There, there's a view that after Malachi, it was 400 years of silence after Malachi wrote which last book of the Old Testament. It was basically 400 years of silence and, and almost insinuating the idea that the Jews had walked in darkness this whole time. I don't believe they did. I believe that the Holy Spirit was active and moving and speaking and leading and drawing people who, who had a, a, a sensitivity to hear him. I think the Holy Spirit was there present in this conversation. But Paul touched on these things. He writes to the, to the Thessalonians and he says to, to not grieve the Spirit. He writes to the Ephesians and says, do not quench the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it, he's incredible to me because he, he is such a still, small voice that does not crowd its way or bully its way into our lives. But it really, I think it, it goes back to what the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote in, in Hebrews chapter 3 and in Hebrews chapter 4. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the day of provocation. 
If you hear the Holy Spirit, and, and, and the thing is, what I have found about the Holy Spirit, and this might be different with some of you, but what I have found about the Holy Spirit is, is that, that he, he doesn't give me the full chunk of something that I am attempting to understand, but he leads me little by little. And as I hear and respond, as I hear and I respond and I say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And it's, it's in those times that I know that the Holy Spirit has got my attention and my focus. And I, and I believe that, that that's how he, he desires to work in our lives. Because we will only grow to the, spiritually to the extent that we are capable of stepping into things and having faith to walk in things. Does that make any sense to you guys? It doesn't, it, it doesn't get downloaded. It becomes something that we experience. It becomes something that, that, that incorporates itself into the very being and into the very fabric of our souls. That's why Paul tells Peter, talking about the engrafted word that is able to save your souls. That the word is actually brought into you and it, it becomes a part of you. Jesus simply tells them in verse 29 to believe on him whom God has sent. And they're not convinced. They were not convinced. And they want a sign. And, and what's, what, what's going on here is, is they're looking for a sign and they are understanding partially. That Jesus performed a miracle in the wilderness the day before. Which resembled which brought their attention to their own history when God provided manna in the wilderness for his people for 40 years. They, they understand that partially. And sometimes what I've found too, when I have partial understanding, and I guess one of the things is I'm standing here in front of you and thinking about this, I'm, I'm almost wanting to ask the question, when do we not have partial understanding about something? But when I get just a glimmer of something, sometimes it's, it's, it's better just to sit with it and, 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 and just try to absorb what it is that the Lord is showing you and allow this thing to unfold. You know, I, I, I feel very sorry for my wife. On a lot of, for a lot of reasons. One is, is that she likes roses and I'm a horrible gardener, okay? Um, so we, we get rose plants every so often. And every so often, you know what they actually do? They'll actually produce a flower. And I see the, the bud on these things. And it's like I want to go and help them open up so my wife will enjoy the flower, right? Of course, you know what I hate about roses? They open up and then they just, they're just... They go from beautiful to ugly. <laughs> anyway, but, but and I want to help them to open up, and yet the thing is, 
I know that I have to allow the plant to do its work. It's like some of you who are farmers or former farmers or would-be farmers or wish you were farmers, you don't help the chick out of the egg, right? You let it work its way out of that eggshell. And I think it's the same way when we, when we grab a hold of these things, and it, but yet we have just a very, very dim understanding as we allow it to unfold and become that beautiful flower in our life. And so they understand a little bit about what's going on, about what Jesus did. So what they are saying is that uh, what sign are you going to do now that we'll see? And then when we see the sign that we will believe in you. I wonder if this was part of where Augustine came up. And I thought, I thought this is wonderful. He says, I don't see that I might believe. I believe in order that I might be able to what? See. I believe in order that I might be able to see. They wanted to see so that they would believe. What work are you performing, they ask him. And they go right back to his miracle the day before, and they say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. It's quoting out of, they're quoting out of Exodus chapter 16, verses 4 and verses 15. We won't take the time to look at those this morning. But there was a view, a theological view that the Jews had at that time where the rabbis developed this, this idea and, and is, is taken from Psalm 72, verse 16, uh, that when the, the Messiah would come, he would outdo the works of Moses with manna from heaven. Now, again, I'm not going to take the time to, to turn to Psalm 72, 16. You can look at it later if you, if you like. It, it doesn't really refer to the manna incident in the wilderness, but it does talk about, well, you know what, let's take a quick look. It, it doesn't hurt. You know, I, I brought this up to you, and then we should at least take a look. Psalm 72, 16. It's a messianic passage, and it says, There will be abundance of grain in the earth, on the tops of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. It, it's, it's this expression of this incredible time of abundance uh, and, and the rabbis read, read this, and they, they saw, well, this means that the Messiah will come and outdo Moses. He will outdo Moses. And, and what had happened is they began to attribute the miracle of the manna not to God, not to Yahweh. But somehow in their thinking, it got convoluted, and they started thinking that Moses was providing the manna for them, where if you go to Exodus 16, it is clear that Moses says the Lord has provided this. Okay. And that's why you have this response 
from Jesus in verse 32 where it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Jesus understood their false understanding that Moses had provided the manna. And he takes that situation, corrects their understanding, that is, if they were able to receive it, and then points them beyond the physical toward the spiritual. You notice how he says, he gives you the true bread out of heaven. Tim, would you do me a favor if you could just bump it, temperature up one degree on the thermostat? Just one. Actually, I could have it about three or four degrees cooler in here, but I have sensed some of you are almost cold. Um, thank you. Um, the physical as a means to express the spiritual. And the true bread of heaven. He's referring to himself. And it... it Boy, I really thought about this because, can I really speculate this morning? Is that all right? Are you going to shoot me if you disagree with me? Most of those people already left. Anyway, um, I really, somehow, I just get the sense that the spiritual world is much more the reality than this physical world that we live in. I've just never been there to understand it and experience it. I've had glimpses. But when I read this, what Jesus is saying, referring to himself as the true bread. Because the reality is, as I think about this, when Jesus proclaims to us that he is the bread of heaven, he is the bread of life, and, and that that goes on to say that anyone who eats from this bread, he will live forever. And then even in verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Which they sarcastically questioned as him being literal. I think that was their sarcasm. And the developing of what is called a straw man. You know what a straw man is, is when you make someone's argument so ridiculous that you can either blow it down, burn it down, kick it down, whatever the case may be. But obviously Jesus was not, we're going to get into this as we get more into this chapter, but Jesus was not talking about some weird form of cannibalism. The physical speaking of the spiritual. That's why even in, in, I almost hesitate to go here because I'm worried that some of you are going to misunderstand what I'm going to say, but whatever. Um, the Last Supper. Jesus takes the bread, says, this is my body. Jesus takes the cup and says, this is my, this is my blood. The physical pointing to the spiritual. Now, I do not believe that the bread and the cup become the actual body and blood of Christ. 
but in being obedient and in following the Lord's command to take of the bread, to drink of the cup. As often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is a memorial, but I believe there's more going on than just a memorial, folks, and I've seen it on your faces for years. And I think you guys have taught me more about communion than I could ever learn in a good theology book just by watching the expression on your faces as you come to the table. It is part of the means of grace, I believe, that we receive from the Lord when we come to him with a pure heart and say, Lord, I want to remember your body. I want to partake of your body. I want to remember your blood. I want to partake of your blood spiritually, spiritual thing. That's what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 6. The thing about something being a means of grace is the reality is, and it's called a sacrament, the reality is I receive a means of grace. I would tell you that I receive a means of grace the moment my feet hit the floor in the morning. But that's not really true either because I've received a means of grace, of God's grace over my life all night the night before as I was sleeping. And that the entirety of our lives, our 24-7 lives, is God's grace breathing upon us through his Holy Spirit. Because we've partaken of the bread of life. And because we have partaken of the bread of life, because we have received him, he has fed us in such a way that will sustain us all the way through eternity. See, they wanted that bread so they wouldn't have to, they wouldn't have to worry about getting something to eat before uh, ever again, right? It was just like the woman at the well who wanted the water, wanted the living water. But she thought it was something physical. She didn't want to go down and haul water off the, uh, from the well every, every day, and I don't blame her. And, and they, they, were, they did not have the sense of the, what's the new phrase, that's food security or whatever. They didn't have the sense of food security that you and I do. If I'm hungry, what do I do? I go to my refrigerator, which is usually not too many steps away. Or if I'm really in the mood for something, I'll get in the car and go get something. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have microwaves. Bread was their substance. It was one of their main substances of what they ate. Different types of grains that they raised. But they had to allow that grain to grow up and then to grow up and, and, and mature and then be harvested. They didn't have the luxury of eating like you and I have the luxury of eating. So they probably went hungry from time to time. So why wouldn't they want to eat something where they wouldn't have to worry about their next meal? Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense to me. We worry about the body that's going to perish. But how interested are we always now, I realize I'm talking to Christians here this morning. But 
how interested are we really in feeding our own souls and sustaining our own souls? And I, I think the context here in John 6 is this idea of Jesus meeting the desire. All of us who came to Christ, we came to Christ for probably some very similar reasons and probably some very unsimilar reasons. I was only eight. Hell was hot. Eternity was a long time. I didn't want to deal with that. All right? So I gave my life to Christ. Maybe it wasn't even the most sincere thing, but the thing is that God honored that. Even, and there was a time in my life, I never, I don't talk about this a whole lot, guys, but I tried really hard to be an atheist. I really did. And it just didn't work because I had already partaken of the bread of life. And once you have partaken of the bread of life, it changes you even when you don't want it to. He is the true bread from heaven. And notice he does not say our father, but he says my father. He makes a distinction here. Same thing he did in John chapter 5, verse 17. That really made them very mad in Jerusalem He's intimating of his special relationship with the Father. He's intimating his own, de his own deity. And then he, he comes right through and says it for the bread of God that is, is that which comes down out of heaven, I'm in verse 33, and gives life to the world. He refers to himself as the bread of God that comes down from heaven. He, he, he is making his claim. It is, it's veiled, but it's still a claim to deity yet again. How many times have we seen this over and over and over again in the book of John? Jesus claiming because he is the second person of the Trinity. They want that bread. I get that. And so then he just, he, just, he just puts it out there. The first of seven I am sayings. And he says, I am the bread of life, verse 35, and the one who comes to me will not be hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. I love these I am statements because, uh, first of all, and I've shared this with you before, the phrase I am, when Jesus uses it, Use it in the gospel. It is a claim of his deity. And when, he, when we have these I am statements, it's, it's that, that, that same group of, uh, group of words, the ego in the Greek, ego emi, which is best translated I am, and then followed by a predicate. In this case, he is the bread of life. And the other, the other six, and well, just to throw them out there for I'm going to give them to you real fast. Uh, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, 7, John uh, 10, 9, I am the gate or I am the door. Uh, John 10, 11, John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. 
uh, John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. And then John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then lastly, um, verse fi- chapter 15, verses 1 and 5, I am the true vine. And you know, even as I'm looking at these and reading these to you, there's a progression there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have, obviously I've got some more digging to do. But we start with the bread of life and we end with the vine. To me, there's no mistake about that. It's not haphazard. He says, I am the bread of life and the one who comes to me. Now, we're going to get into some kind of heavy theology here in John 6. That's why I'm doing this a chunk at a time. He says, the one who comes to me will not be hungry and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. So you ready for a quick grammar lesson? We haven't done grammar for a while, right? Okay. Some of you love it, some of you hate it, I guess. But anyway. The Greek word for translated come in English is the word erkome. Now, erkome, the way it is structured in its writing. Greek is a very, is almost, and I, I never did good in grammar in school, and I wish I would have paid more attention. But the spelling of the words will indicate whether the type of, Uh, grammar that you are to apply in the Greek. Does that make any sense to you? And it's usually with the suffix, which is the ending of the word. This is given to us in either a middle or a passive voice. When Jesus says, the one, he's talking about us, the one who comes to him, it's middle or passive voice. Okay, it can be translated either way. That's what it's saying here. The middle voice means the subject of the verb, which in this sentence is whom, the one, which is who, us, all right? The middle voice says that the one is affecting their own action. It's like when you're tired, what do you do? You sit down. So you are the one who sat down. That's middle voice. Now you are resting. So you, by your decision to sit down or your action, because it's a verb, by your action to sit down, you are now resting. You've affected yourself. I'm just checking faces to make sure everybody's kind of with me here. That's middle voice. One more illustration, just in case. Some of you use hearing aids, and there's people like me who need them. Um, I know some people, they actually can turn those things down or off. By your verb action of either turning your aid up or down, you're able to hear me or not hear me. Right? Okay? You affected your own, by your actions, you affected your own condition. Quit plugging your ears. Okay. Passive voice. Remember, it's middle or passive. And we're going to get into this again next week, okay? As a matter of fact, I may probably do a test. No, I'm kidding. All right. Middle or passive. 
The subject is being acted on. Let's say one of you comes up here and you stand right in front of this chair and I very gently push you over and you sit down on the chair. Okay, not being mean, just it's bad illustrations, the best I came up with, okay? The subject, the one, is being acted on. So either the one comes to Christ by their own volition or the one is brought to Christ in some way, by some outside source. What you have here in this discourse, and by the way, this word is used quite a bit in, in, in this particular passage, you have this combination of God acting and you acting as well. Does it make any sense? No. And I've heard the arguments, and I've heard the arguments, and I've heard the arguments, and I've heard the arguments. And quite frankly, and I I don't mean this to be sarcastic, but I'm bored with them. The Bible says, one who comes. So that tells me I have a responsibility. That tells me you have a responsibility. I also know, later on, it tells us that unless the Father draws, no one will come. That's really clear. But we also read this in the context of God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever. And when someone tries to tell me whosoever is the elect, I tell them they should go back to seminary. Because that's not how it should be interpreted. There is this incredible tension that is something that is far too wonderful for us, I think, to understand. That after hearing all the arguments, making all the arguments, both sides of the table of of the arguments, I'm at the place to just simply accept what God has said. Because I can give you a pretty good case on this either way. But the main thrust of this section is number one, I'm the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. The last day is another thing that is interesting. That's referring to the day of the Lord, okay? I will raise him up on the last day when he comes back. When he comes back to earth. And so we have this incredible place that's hard to define, that I really can't define, that we really can't wrap our heads around, but I have to accept it by faith. God draws me, and yet I have to respond. God draws me, and yet I have to respond. For it wasn't for the work of the Holy Spirit, I would have never become a Christian, and neither would have you. 
But I'm also convinced if you had not said yes to God, you would not be a Christian today. So, I imagine the parking lot might be fun this afternoon. But anyway. um, But I love what he says here. The one who comes to me will not be hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is the bread of life. He is our substance. And the one who comes to him will no longer hunger, and the one who turns to him will no longer thirst. See, the reality is, and, and this sounds almost too simplistic. Really, apart from the Lord, nothing else satisfies. Apart from the Lord, nothing else satisfies. Now, sin is pleasurable, right? I've left out, I always do this to you, and I know some of you, it just kind of makes you, anyway. Sin is pleasurable for a season, Scripture tells us. But the reality is nothing satisfies other than the bread of life. And I think part, and as I think about this, because I know Chris, people who I think are Christians. The reality is, don't depend upon me about whether you're saved or not. It's not my opinion that matters. That really is between you and God. But people who I, I have a sense who are Christian, and, and yet I, I, at times I look at their lives and I, I see a hunger and I see a thirst. I'm not going to tell you that in my life I've never been hungry or thirsty, right? I'm not, I didn't tell you that, right? Or something else. You know what, I, as I thought about this, and I, to me it's kind of a problem. I think what happens though is that we lose our appetite for that which truly satisfies. We lose our appetite for the Lord sometimes. Because we want something with a bigger bang. We want something with a bigger sound. We want something with brighter lights or whatever the case may be. We, we, we want something new. Or we become spiritually dull. Like Eve did. Like Adam did. And, and we allow ourselves to be swayed. In attempting to be satisfied by things that really will not satisfy. And then we begin to ignore, and, and, and so when we develop an appetite for something other than the Lord, we begin to ignore those things that, w- that we truly desire. Because I, a person who is a Christian, I, I think that, that there is a holy longing that has been, been planted in, into their souls where they desire him, where they want to have fellowship with him. And, and and, and they know that, they, that, that in and of themselves, 
it just doesn't cut it. Now, I was thinking about some, I, uh, this wonderful quote that I can never remember. But it has something to do, and I, I, I thought this was important. And so I, I thought about this. I wanted to share this with you. It is infinitely, I'm just going to make it up. How's that? It is infinitely more glorious to be in the presence of God and to entertain the company of God than it is to entertain the company of men. But often we, we're, we gravitate toward the company of, especially if you're an extrovert, we gravitate toward the company of men rather than the still small quiet voice of the cave of Mount Horeb where Elijah heard the still small voice of God. We ignore those things that we truly desire because we buy into the lie. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2 asks the question. I think I'm going to turn there and read, uh, read it to you instead of just a little snippet I had in my notes. Isaiah 55 I love this because it starts out with ho, right? H-O. Kind of like, get your attention, all right? Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. You who have no money, come by and eat. Does that make any sense? Some of you are shaking your head, no, good, because it doesn't. Is it a paradox? Obviously. That in itself should be an attention getter. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight in itself in abundance. I'm tempted to read the entire chapter. It's a wonderful chapter. Isaiah 55, you have time, look at it later. But it's this calling to allow yourself to be satisfied in the things that are going to truly satisfy you. But what I've found, gosh, I I really need another 10 minutes and I'm, I'm almost done. What I... What I've found is that at times I really have to redevelop my appetite for the things of God. Now, I've, I've talked to people, and, and food is an interesting conversation piece, isn't it? Right? And I, I've talked to some people that, that uh, they either, like those who give up sugar, um, if you do, you do, all right? I mean, Whatsoever you eat, drink, or do, do as do unto, uh, as unto the, do so. Excuse me, as unto the Lord. All right, that's all I'm going to say about that. But I've talked to people who give up sugar, and and all of a sudden, you know, they, they think they're Superman, right? Maybe they are. Um, but then they eat sugar again for the first time in however long, and oh, it's way too sweet, right? 
because they've lost their taste for it. Same thing with salt or whatever, right? And it can be that we, through our own negligence, begin to lose our spiritual taste for the things of God. That was the problem with Israel, Judah, the city of Jerusalem, specifically Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. It says, for my people have committed two evils. Jeremiah 2, 13 is a very important verse. It says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn, or dug, for themselves broken, or cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, they forsook God number, as evil number one. Number two, they went after something else that will not satisfy and will not hold the living water that was so absolutely necessary for their souls. Jesus says in verse 36 of John 6, but I say to you that you have indeed seen me and yet you do not believe. I find that to be fascinating that he identifies their unbelief. Right after telling them this incredible, important piece of our relationship to Christ is really, if you will, the entry point, and that is to recognize him as the bread of life and to partake of the bread and to receive him as Lord and Savior. Not only do we do that initially, but the bread of life is something to be given to us each. And I've been talking about this the whole time, haven't I? The bread of life has been given, has been given to us to partake of each and every day. 